Here's another inspiring message from Northside Community Church, Sydney. Hey, good morning again. It's terrific to be here, brothers and sisters. Um, uh, someone pointed out to me at the, at the first gathering this morning the connection between Sydney and San Francisco. Uh, I guess they're sister cities. We both got these amazing bridges. And um, I used to hear from the old timers in San Francisco that um, the, the Brits sent the criminals to Australia, and the really bad ones that they couldn't handle here, they sent on to San Francisco. And that, I don't know if it's true or not, uh, but it's really terrific to um, be here with you this weekend. And I'm, gonna, I'm doing one talk this morning and then another, a different talk tonight. And I want to talk about living on purpose. I have a slideshow, but we're going to see if it works or not. And I'm going to have to, you can be praying for me to see if I can remember this talk without any, any of my prompts. Um, I'm married to a woman named Lisa. We live in uh, San Francisco, which right now is a very interesting place because it's a city of incredible contrasts right now. Um, I, we moved into a neighborhood 21 years ago called the Mission District, which was a traditional barrio, kind of Latin American neighborhood. And in that neighborhood, we have a lot of people right now who are um, undocumented immigrants and people who are from working class families with a lot of struggle. And um, many of our neighbors live on the streets, actually. They sleep in tents because, as you may have heard, just like Sydney, San Francisco has become a very expensive place to live. And um, we've had an influx of tech workers, people working for companies like Google and Facebook and Twitter. Have you, have you guys heard of these or is it just back where I live? And um, in, in fact, a few years ago, I got a new neighbor uh, he was a young man who wasn't even 30 years old. He bought a house uh, about 10 blocks from us. Uh, maybe you've heard him. His name, his name is also Mark, just like mine, but Mark Zuckerberg. And um, it was a little weird to me to like be in a neighborhood where there's, there's a young guy in my neighborhood who's worth $58 billion. And, and even after he was accident, accidentally rigged our election... Um, you know, uh, he, his wealth went down for a little bit, but now it's up in the 60 billion mark. And so suddenly, um, I'm not that well off compared to my neighbor, right? <laughs> and I think that's something we all can kind of tend, uh, we can all relate to. Like, we, we, you can look out on the world and you can see people who have more than, than you do. Right, someone driving a better car, living in a better neighborhood, having having more luxurious experiences, and one of my friends one time said, "It's it's curious to me that I spend so much time comparing myself to the people who are way better off than me, the few one percent of people in the world, and so little time thinking about how much better I am off than about six billion other people on the planet." And that's something I think worth uh, us wrestling with. Oh, here's the picture of my family. Uh, my daughter, um, Haley, son, Noah, and wife, Lisa, and youngest son, Isaiah, who we call Spanky. And um, our kids have, have had to wrestle with this how well off are we thing as well. Um, we, are, um, we are better off than many of their Latin American neighbors, who they, uh, the friends that they grew up with. Um, it wasn't a question of whether or not our kids were going to go to college. 
There was, there was money for them to go to university. They were going to have, have the support we, that they needed from us. But that's not true for some of, our, um, some of our neighbors. On the other hand, we're not so well off compared to a lot of the tech families that, we, that, that our kids grew up around. So I think if you asked my kids what, um, what their dad's like, they might say, our dad is kind of odd, but also kind of cool. Did anybody feel that way about their parents growing up besides me? Kind of odd, but also kind of cool. And um, I definitely felt that way as well as a kid. Uh, My parents are kind of odd and kind of cool. And it was partly because my family had made some intentional choices to be sort of a, a family that lived simply. When, um, when most people moved out of the city, I grew up in a city called Minneapolis, when most people moved out and moved into the bigger houses and the nicer suburbs, my family made the unpopular choice to stay living in a small house. Let's go to the next slide if we can. And I can see if my um, slide clicker works. Oh, these aren't in order. <laughs> That's going to be interesting. Uh, we'll see what happens. So... Um, so, uh, so I was different than the other kids in my, in my, uh, world because my mom stayed home from, uh, d- instead of having two incomes, my mom stayed home so that we'd have a bit more nurture at home. And that was an intentional choice. And, um, there was some downs, a few downsides to being in this oddly simple family. Uh, one was that, um, I was the kid with the with the two to the two short jeans and the brown bag lunches at school, so that made me feel a little bit different. We had a car that was older and um, like was repaired with Coke bottles, and um, it, for the headlight. Uh, but there were some advantages too. My dad worked a job where he was done with work and home by four fifteen p.m. every night. And that gave us lots of time to have great family meals, good times around the dinner table talking, um, volleyball in the backyard in the evenings in the summer, walks along the Mississippi River together, enjoying each other's company. There was one thing that was not so great about um, living in this oddly simple family, and that was that we, I have three sisters, six family members, and we only had one bathroom. Did anybody besides me grow up in a house that only had one bathroom? Let's see if they... Okay, the few and the proud, and most of us look a little bit older, okay? Well, um, we had, you, if, um, if you grew up this way, you know you have to get creative if you have a lot of people who need to go to the bathroom or use, use the shower or whatever. And in my house, it often looked like uh, one person in the shower, one person... Um, sitting on the toilet, and one person at the sink brushing their teeth. And you just had to be real careful that if you were on the toilet, you did not want your knee touching the person, the back of somebody's leg who was standing next to you brushing their teeth. So when I turned uh, 12 or 13 years old, my dad came home from work one day, and he said, um, I've been offered a tremendous opportunity. Uh, I can go. I can. I can take a huge advance in my work. It's going to uh, constitute a raise of in our in, do, in today's dollars would be a raise of um, let's say forty or fifty thousand dollars a year. Uh, it would be, be a big bump. And um, so we got kind of excited. But he said it's also going to mean that our family has to move every two to three years from now on. 
because I'm on this other track. My parents prayed about it, and um, you know we talked about it, and we decided that it was a good choice for our family. And so a couple years later, uh, we moved from urban Minneapolis to rural Alabama. And I don't know if I, I don't have time to explain the difference between those places to you, but you can just say these are as opposite places as possible in the United States. And overnight, we went from being the oddly simple family in Minneapolis to those rich Yankees down on Kings Hollow Road. Move from this small house to a grand house. There are room after room and vaulted ceilings and balconies, uh, a pool, uh, pool table room and uh, a formal dining room. And the best part to me was a, a nice swimming pool in the backyard with a diving board and a slide and a two acre lawn. It would take me f- um, six hours with a push mower to, to mow this whole lawn, which was okay because I could do, j- take breaks and jump into the pool. But it was an adjustment for our family. Um, suddenly, we went from one car to three cars. We could afford um, all, brand new furniture to fill this b- a big house, electronic equipment. We got our first home computer, the um, Tandy 1000. I don't know if anybody remembers that one. It, 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 was, it had a double floppy drive. So it was really fancy. And um, there were some really great things about suddenly moving up. One was that, uh, obviously, this uh, great house, it was, um, our family was into hospitality, and we invited lots of people over. Uh, but then some things that weren't, um, weren't so easy. One was that my dad now had a quite long commute. He used to, he used to be able to walk bike or take a bus to work, and it only took him like 15 minutes, it's 20 minutes, and now he, he had hours of driving to, um, to his office. He often had to travel for work and be away from our family, and I would see him come home more and more stressed out, sad, and we had less and less of those times of good conversation around the dinner table walks and family fun. He'd often, uh, because of the weight of the stress of that job, simply go up to his room and he needed to spend some time alone. And uh, when I was heading off to university, my, um, my dad said to me, uh, uh, I, I was thinking about what I was going to do next in life, and I was actually th- thinking that I wanted to marry Lisa, my wife. And he said, Mark, before you m- decide to bring somebody else into your life, you should take a little bit of time and really think about what you're about. And he said, I didn't take the time to do this. And before, all I knew is that I wanted to get married. And before I knew it, I had to provide for you and your siblings. And I just responded to whatever was urgent. And so I got into work that I didn't love and now you see how, how kind of um, stressed it is, but, but I, really need, I'm really, I really need to provide. And he said, my, don't get me wrong, my life has been meaningful in a lot of ways, our family, faith relationships, but the bulk of how I spend my time doesn't feel that meaningful to me. But you have a chance to really think about this. And he said, I would sit, spend some time right now thinking about who are you? What do, you, um, what do you want to be about in life? What makes life meaningful? And how can you spend your time and money on the things that matter most? So I took his advice to heart. 
And um, now that we lived in this bigger house, I forgot to tell you, it had um, not one, not two, not three, but four bathrooms in this house, which for the first time in my life, I could get a little solitude while I was doing my business. And so I probably spent some time in one of those bathrooms by myself and on long walks thinking about those three questions. Who am I? What makes life meaningful? How can I spend my life on those things that are most important? And I wasn't making, having this conversation alone because I was already dating Lisa. And together, we, uh, ta- we tried to clarify what are the things that we want to be about in life from what we know of our, uh, of our faith and scripture. And we came up with five things that were sort of, this is what we want to be about in life. We said, we want to know and uh, we want to love creator and creation. We want to nurture healthy family dynamics. We want to offer hospitality and care, especially to those who suffer and struggle. And we want to get, use our gifts to serve. We didn't quite know what those gifts were yet, but we're like, we want to, whatever work we're, we're made to do, we want it to contribute to the greater good that God desires for this world. And we want to live simply, gratefully, and creatively. So that was a helpful step. But then we looked around and I started to wonder, I bet you most people I know who are older than me thought at least a little bit about this and deep in their heart, they had longings about what's most significant and important in life. But when I look around and maybe this is 19 year old egotistical male thought here, but I'll just tell you what it was. I was like, I don't see very many people actually living out of deep meaning and purpose and vitality. I see a lot of people tired, stressed, hurried, focused on just what's right in front of them and, try, and trying to cope with that. And so we thought, how can we have a great vision for our lives, but if we're not careful, then the forces of a materialist and consumptive culture will probably end up making most of our decisions for us. Um, we, you and I both live in parts of the world where there are, there are some um, broader kind of messages or scripts that we have about life that tend to drive our decisions. And unless we interrogate them, question them and say, is that really what the good life is? Is that really the kind of life that, that, um, that Jesus invites us into? Is that really the version of abundance that, um, that's the most whole and true? We'll end up following those tracks that tend to be consumptive and materialistic. And so, and lead us away from the real flourishing that, that we're made for. So at the time, Lisa and I looked at the scriptures and we, um, we noticed some themes in the teachings of Jesus and some of the letters of Paul that kind of challenged some of our cultural understandings about what good life is. Here's a few of them. Uh, in Luke 12, Jesus said, a person's life does not consist in the abundance of their possessions. It's not what you own that brings meaning to life. I suspect that if Jesus was uh, saying these words in the 21st century, he might also have said, a person's life does not consist in the abundance 
of their consumptive experiences. Uh, some of the research I've, I've read suggests that maybe older generations have tended to be a bit more material-focused in their understanding of wealth, the big house, the nice car, etc. And then there's some, some people who are in emerging generations, particularly the millennial generation, who are like, I don't need the big house. Uh, I don't need the fancy car. I want to just have the, uh, an apartment in the center of Sydney in the nicest hippest, coolest part, right? So I'm less materialistic. Pat yourself on the back. Or I don't even want to have a television. You know, that's how simple I am. I just watch a lot of Netflix, right, on my computer, and somehow that's better. Um, Being non-material does not take us out of that consumerist thing. Um, You know, I I think sometimes we can think about having consumptive experiences, meals worthy of taking photos and broadcasting them to everybody you know, right? It's still that sort of drive that says, I can only be happy if I have more or bigger or better. Uh, another thing that Jesus said in, the, um, uh, in his teaching was, do not worry about your life, what you're going to eat or drink. And then he gets to the big picture and he says, seek first God's kingdom. And God's righteousness or justice. Uh, in, in other words, don't make your life just about what you can have or stick in your mouth or put on your body. Life's more than about those things. We're, what we're made for isn't just to wake up and look at our to-do list and, and, and um, walk like zombies through our day. Jesus said in this, in this text, suggests you were made for something deeper. You were made to use your life energy to seek and be a part of the remaking all of, of the remaking of all of creation that Jesus called the kingdom of God. You're, you're meant for something bigger. Uh, a third text that spoke to us was um, actually Paul writing to his young Padawan. That's Star Wars language for disciple. Um, and he says, he says, Tim, if we have food and clothes, we're good with that. We'll be content with that. We, we don't need to have lives that are about acquiring. Once we've had those basic things that we need, now how we, can we leverage our lives towards meaningful things? Um, so I'm looking around the room this morning, and I'm, um, first of all, I'm guessing that if you felt hungry this morning, that you were able to get, uh, you were able to get, uh, some, a, a good breakfast. You know, I, I happen to have avocado toast this morning. I mean, I know it's cliche and, and I'm in Sydney, but it was delicious and I had a little bit of Vegemite in there as well. And did anybody have a chance to get some food in them this morning? Or a cup of coffee, right? I'm looking around the room and noticing, I think thankfully, that all of us have clothes on. <laughs> you know, only about 2% of us look better with our clothes off. Most of us, it's better with our clothes on. So we've got that taken care of, though. We don't have to worry about that. We, we have enough wealth that we have clothes on our backs. So since we have food, and I'm guessing you know where you're going to eat lunch, and you know that there's some food at home when you get home, we've got those basic things taken care of. So we can get on to the more important things, the, big, the more visionary things about how we can be part of what God is doing in this world. Another way of asking this question is, what is the right size life? The right amount of money, the right amount of time, the right amount of material possessions. And not just what's the right size life for me, 
But what's the right size life so that everyone on the planet can enjoy the lives that they were created for? Uh, Research suggests that we've only learned to be consumptive as we are today in the last hundred years of human life. Like, uh, like we made a shift from having an agrarian relationship with the earth um, to a more post-industrial one where our understanding of wealth is more monetary and it's causing some devastation and extreme heights of inequality that I think we need to, to wrestle with and grasp. So armed with some of those insights from the teachings of Jesus, Lisa and I as 19, 20-year-olds decided that we would try what we called our radical contentment experiment. Oh, doesn't that sound lofty? And it had five different things that we thought, let's, we're young, we could try and experiment with some of these things about living more by the teachings of Jesus than by the messages of our culture. And I want to share uh, some of those with you. First, we said, let's be grateful for what we have, content, and embrace voluntary limits. What if we start off by saying what we have now is good and we, we don't have to have, um, make our lives or our time about more, bigger, better. We'll be content with the kind of housing we have, by the kind of transportation we have, by the clothes we have, and just not, not strive after more. And one thing we noticed is uh, as a result of trying that out, and you, you'd be welcome to try it too, and maybe you have, is anything extra felt like a luxury. If I don't expect more and more, anything that I can receive is like, great, I'm glad for that. You know, I receive it as a gift. Uh, second, we said, if we're going to live with contentment, we also want to live by a spending plan and whenever possible, avoid debt. And I'm grateful for parents who helped me with a little bit of um, financial competency. And the result was that instead of being anxious about what's going to happen if our car breaks down or how are we going to pay for that, um, we were often able to, uh, by, uh, by managing well, save up for upcoming expenses. Interestingly, in the Gospels, Jesus said, um, uh, use worldly wealth well and it will prepare you to handle the wealth of the kingdom of God. If you haven't been trustworthy with your material life, how will you be trustworthy with spiritual riches? So good financial management is part of preparing us to handle the true riches of God's kingdom. And uh, a third thing is we said we want to be resourceful and ecologically conscious. Let's make decisions thinking about 7 billion people and not just the two of us. And as a result, it helped us to use less and live more justly. Two other things. We said um, we want to live generously, like so that we're living in these margins so that there's extra that we can give. And sometimes we'd pray, God, do you want us, uh, in addition to giving a thoughtful amount uh, to church community and mission, are there other things you're prompting us to do to help, help, help a widow or someone who's been through a trauma or an accident or something? And it allowed, a, um, and then here was the other part of that. We said, we want to make our decisions about work based on passion rather than the paycheck amount. Uh, a friend of mine a few years ago said, when we were in a group where we were talking through some of these things in our lives, said, I realize I've made most of my work decisions based on my, how much education I have and how much experience I have. 
And so I just looked for the job where the number was what I expected. But she said, I feel like God's inviting me now to say, instead of just looking at that number, what if I said, what makes me feel alive? What's work that I feel like I can do that helps um, heal the world and bring the goodness that God wants in our world? And when, when we wrestled with this, it helped us to be free to spend our time on what matters most. Uh, we had a heart for kids and families, and we got to spend the first four years that we were married working with kids in low-income estates, and it felt really alive, even though we didn't make very much money at all. And that sort of continued, and um, we, when we felt called to move from where we lived to San Francisco, um, it was going to be a financial challenge because of the expense, but we'd prepared for it, and we'd been able to largely spend the last 25 years doing work that together that we really value. Um, and we also knew that there would probably be times where if we're trying to live this radical contentment way, there's not a lot of extra. And so we said, we, we also will need, we want to trust God and ask for what we need. Um, when we were working with kids and families, um, we, I love taking the kids to concert, the young, these, these at-risk kids to concerts and, um, out to the, out of the city into the woods. And I had this little four passenger car. And, uh, I would sometimes cram eight or nine young people into this car because they all, they would be standing there looking sad, wanting to go to the beach or to, out into the woods together too. And of course, I wouldn't do this today, but there weren't enough seatbelts for everybody. But um, one night we felt prompted to say, God, you've brought all these kids into our lives to care for. We don't have the money, but would you give us a van? We're just asking. And uh, just a few days later, Someone we didn't know called us out of the blue at 9.30 p.m. And she said, I was praying and I felt prompted that God said that um, God wants me to buy you a van. Would you like one? We hadn't talked to her about it. And, and uh, she said, well, go down to the dealership and, um, and there's, I've got one picked out for you. And if you like it, I will pay for it. And so it was a pretty dramatic confirmation to us about ways that God can provide if we share our desires. But some things were more simple, like we didn't know if we were going to have enough money for diapers for our first child. And Lisa had to pray, God, uh, I want to get good cloth diapers, but they're expensive. And um, she was able to find them for on sale for like a fourth of what they would have been. And we took that as a small sign of unexpected provision for us. M- I'm guessing that many of you have followed some of these same principles and that you know that the kind of yield that they have over time. Um, I, I, we're grateful for the ways that we've been able to experience this, these kind of things in our lives. And it's become a passion for us to walk with other people to discover more heart freedom and also, as a result, better practices about time and money that would lead to greater flourishing. I want to name a couple things because I've touched on these topics a little bit this morning. There might be somebody, you might be sitting here this morning and you've got some money aches. Like many people I know, um, maybe the numbers aren't adding up. You know that more is going out than is coming in. Or you've got, uh, I know for a lot of people today, school loans is a real issue. Things uh, things you have to pay back to others. Or... um, 
Yeah, the cost of real estate in, in this area is so expensive. How would you ever have member, uh, you know, ownership? And so some of us uh, are here this morning with some money aches. Some of us are here this morning with some meaning and soul aches. Man, I wish I could spend my time doing things I'm more passionate about. I feel God's calling to a particular ministry, but I'm too, I'm too busy or my life's too full to, to engage in that. Some of us this morning um, might have an ache for, um, I missed a slide, but I'm going to say a time ache. You feel hurried by your life and you wish that you could live in a rhythm that's uh, better. And finally, let's say that for you, money is good. Time is good, and um, you're doing meaningful things with your life. Congratulations, that's awesome. Another ache that I think we're all invited to share is what it means to love our neighbor as ourself. When um, here in Australia, this is particularly um, uh, this area, it tends to be a pretty, um, like, thing, things look good to me. Like, life looks good for most people. There's a good social safety net. The borders are protected, so people who don't have too many needs, not too many of them get in, right? Um, and, but we're being invited by our invitation of the gospel to think about what it means to love our neighbor as ourselves, not just the person who lives next door to us or down the street, but that we're part of a bigger family, the family of God. And what does it mean to live with an ache for global equity and sustainability? So um, a few years ago, we, Lisa and I had, had really learned, um, felt, felt grateful for some of the lessons that we'd learned on this invitation to a flourishing life with time and money. We thought we'd invite some friends into an experiment um, with us with this. And our friends and us were like, looking at the Gospels, and we noticed some of the most radical things that Jesus had to say about time and money. And one of them, probably the most compelling one that stuck out to us, was this, this place where Jesus said, sell your possessions and give to the poor. Wow, could Jesus really have been serious about this? Did he really mean it? Um, because if he did, this, 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 is a, this means something. Well, the earliest disciples of Jesus it apparently thought he was serious because in Luke, I'm sorry, he says, sell your possessions and give to the poor. In the early chapters of Acts, it says, selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone who had need. He was serious about this. So um, our, on first take, that sounds like a hard instruction. And you might do like I've done, and I see a verse like that, and I go, man, Jesus is, Jesus is hard. I don't, want to do, I don't want to sell possessions and give to the poor. So why would Jesus say something like this? What does he know about the nature of reality that we've missed? And I think it gets down to the question, do we live in a world of scarcity or a world of abundance? If we live in a world of scarcity where there is not enough, then we're in fierce competition to get whatever we can get to hold on to it and not share it. I want you to take your hands with me and I want you to clench them like this. This is that posture of scarcity. More, bigger, better. It breeds anxiety. It breeds competition. How does it feel to hold your hands so tightly like that? The gospel invites us from this posture of scarcity that I think we're born into 
to be transformed and we're invited to relax and open our hands and to live with open-handed trust, to receive what we need from God with thanks, to ask ask, seek, and knock for the things that we need, and to share what we have. And maybe if we all learn to live with that open-handedness of the kingdom of God, there would be enough for all of us and not just for the few of us. Um, My sense is that Jesus believed and and taught out of a sense of God's abundance, that the rain falls, the sun shines, and the earth produces what is needed for human flourishing. We see other evidence of this teaching throughout the Gospels. There was a guy uh, named Zach, or you may have heard of him as Zacchaeus. And this guy Zacchaeus had a short man's complex. I don't know if this exists in Australia, but in my country, if you have it, you usually drive a really big truck sometimes with double wheels on the back, and it's loud. And um, I get the sense that Zacchaeus was that kind of guy. He felt a little inferior, and so he's like, even though I've got this inferiority, I'm going to become the wealthiest person possible. And the way he did that was by colluding with the Romans to overtax his own people. I don't know how many people wanted to go to parties at Zacchaeus' house. Jesus had to invite himself over. And at that party... I think Zacchaeus had an encounter with Jesus where he realized, I've been trying to develop my sense of security and esteem by acquiring things, by having more. But I'm, I'm feeling the love right now. I feel accepted. I feel at home. And at the end of the party, or during the party, he gets up and he announces, I'm going to give away half of what I own. I'm going to pay back four times everybody that I've ever ripped off by colluding with the Romans. And in response to that, Jesus says, today, salvation has come to this house. I don't think Jesus said that because Zacchaeus was earning anything by giving things away. Let's be clear. But what was going on, I think, is that he was saying, Zacchaeus, you finally got it. Welcome to the family. You are home. You're learning to live in in my care and in my father's care. Another theme we see when John the Baptist was proclaiming the reality of the kingdom, people asked him, what should we do because the kingdom's real? And he says, anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none, and anyone who has food should do the same. So based on some of these themes here, our friends and I decided we would do an experiment We called it Have to Give One. I sent an email out to a group of friends and I said, would anyone like to try this with us? What if we actually followed some of the teachings of Jesus? What would happen in our lives? And so we're proposing that a group of us get together and figure out how to sell or give away half of what we own and use those resources to help the poorest people in the world get basic access to resources. There'd just been a tsunami in Southeast Asia. A lot of people were left without resources, and we thought we could sell half our stuff and help those people get the things that they need to stay alive. So we quick got, uh, there was 30 people who wanted to do this with us, to my surprise. We got into three different groups, and we developed like a method for how we would do this. One week, we would collect clothes. Another week, it would be household items and collectibles. Another week, it would be bicycles and cars. And maybe we got off easy because we were young, but no, so no one was wrestling with how to get rid of their second home by the beach. But... 
but it still really was instructive to us. I remember the first week we had this pile of clothes in our living room this big. People took turns diving into it. And then we sat down and talked about it. And I asked everyone, what came up for you in your heart when you were looking at your closets or what thoughts came up? And one person said, I found enough clothes in my closet to wear a different outfit every day for two months. But I still only just wear like the five or six things I like the most. Why do I keep buying things? And she said it made me, and and I found things in there that still had the price tags on them, and they'd been in there for a couple of years. So apparently I didn't buy those things to clothe my body. I bought them to do like what in America we call retail therapy. Like you're feeling sad or stressed and swiping a card releases dopamine in your brain like a drug and you feel a little bit better for a little while. But then I feel empty again afterwards. So um, we were surprised by uh, another thing and that was that a lot of the stuff that we'd held on to as being precious, collectibles and things like that, when we put them up on eBay or on websites to sell or at a, at a, a, a street sale, People would only pay like a small amount for these things that we thought were so valuable. So why had they occupied so much of our time to maintain and such a hold on our hearts? Well, partly through this experiment, uh, Damon, who was uh, a friend of mine, said, Mark, this is actually being way easier than I thought. In fact, I think that I could probably sell everything I have and give the money away. And in six months, I would have all, all of it back because we live in such an affluent area. I'm surrounded by people who have as much as me, and they'd give me their used mountain bike and their two-year-old computer and their extra jacket and their extra mountain bike. So he said, I think if we're really going to get into what Jesus might be inviting us into about this radical abundance, that we would talk about how much money we make where we spend it, what our debts are, and what our assets are. The room got real quiet when he said this, just like you guys got pretty quiet too. And um, we said, why would we do that? I asked him, why would we do this? And he said, well, I looked in the book of Acts, and it says that they shared with each other. There were no needy among them. And so how did they do that? How did they know who had resources and who had needs unless they talked about it? So... We, um, our group decided we were game for that. And just so you know, this is no, no more culturally appropriate to do in the United States as it would be in Australia. It's not what people don't get around and talk about their, their money together. And so, um, he said, I want to do this for two reasons. He said, um, he said, how you, how we spend our time is how we spend our lives and how we spend our lives is shaped by our choices with money. He said, I'm working for a tech company right now, and I, I live at the level of the amount that they pay me, and they own me. I spend the best hours of my week, 50 hours, giving it to them. And I wonder if I wasn't so consumptive, if I would have more time and energy to do the things that really matter to me instead. And I think if we talk about this, it might help us. So the week goes by, and at, the, uh, at our next meeting, he, Damon and I had sort of developed a template for sharing. And 
um, we, uh, we took turns. No one had to share anything they weren't comfortable with. Some people held, their, uh, th- held things close. Other people were like, I don't care. And they, they had made copies of all of their budget stuff and they threw them up in the air and they flittered down and we could see exactly how much they were spending on toothpaste. And um, the first person that shared was someone that I'd envied and judged for being a wealthy person. Stanford MBA, tech startups. I just imagined all of this, uh, th- this wealth this person had. And as they shared with us, it turned out that they were spending, um, they were giving away 35% of their income. They were paying way more taxes than me because I got three kids. So they're giving more to help roads and schools than I am. And that they were saving uh, for nieces and nephews for their education and actually spending less on food and housing than any of the rest of us. And we're like, wow, God's entrusted wealth to you and you're using it in really beautiful ways. Second um, person goes, and it's a couple, and they said, when we did this exercise this week, we realized we have $1,000 a month going out more than coming in. And we just found out we're pregnant with our first child and we don't, we don't know how things are going to work out. And that was the beginning for them of bringing their time and money more into alignment and to learn to act less compulsively. Third person shares. And this person um, uh, revealed to us that after paying their rent, they didn't have enough money for groceries and they were just swiping it on a credit card. And we couldn't tell, and this is something I've found uh, over and over again, you can't tell where, where, what situation someone's in just by what they look like. And maybe you go out for that nice lunch, and for them, they don't have the money, but they want to be at the lunch with everybody else, but they can't afford it. And that's what was going on for her. A bit of a story behind this is that she'd experienced some trauma as a child, that she got in touch with at university, had to drop out, was stuck in a service job, and couldn't get on with her life because of it. So when the group heard about her situation, one person said, "Um, I've had to work my way out of consumer debt. I'll help you with a plan. Another person said, "Um, why don't you come live with our family so that you don't have to pay rent so you can get on your feet financially? And then as a group, we said, we want to be good friends to you and walk with you in your trauma and help you seek God's healing. But we think someone who's trained to, to walk, work with somebody in your situation would be good. So we've collected some money, and we're going um, to, uh, if you'd like to, we'd like to pay for you to do that. All of this came from having the courage to have an awkward conversation. We were able to send thousands of dollars away to this development organization. Our apartments and homes were much less cluttered. And we were beginning the journey, and it continues to be a journey, of learning to live in the freedom of a, and abundance of the kingdom of God. So there's, um, as I conclude, I want to dare you to believe a couple of things. One, I dare you to believe that you were made with a greater purpose. Scripture says that you and I are priests, royal priests and priestesses in the kingdom of God. We're royalty made to use our life energy to seek the creator's purposes in this world, to be healers and restorers. Second, I dare you to believe that you have enough. What if 
what you have right now is what you need. And that when you have more needs, your creator will provide the things you need each day. Like in the prayer that Jesus taught us, give us this day our daily bread. And I dare you to believe that you can use what you have and who you are, the time and breath of life that you have, to do good with the resources that you have. Um, I want to thank you for giving me a chance to come share with you a stranger. And maybe as a stranger can come and talk about things that would be harder for someone who you see more regularly. But I want to leave you with a question. Two questions, actually. Right now, what's crowding out or keeping you from a flourishing life? The, the life that the creator has for us. Or to ask it a different way, how do you want to be more free? More free with your time, more free with your passions, more free uh, with your resources. And the picture I get, uh, well, let me just say this. If you need help with this, we have a book available here that Lisa and I wrote together called Free. But beyond that, I think there's one more slide. I hope there's one more slide. I want to invite you to consider the flourishing, remind you again of the flourishing life that Jesus invites us into, a true version of the good life. And um, Jesus looked out on a crowd of people in Matthew 11, and he saw that they were tired, they were worn out, they were weary, and, and he gives them an invitation. And he says, Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. I didn't come here today to make you feel guilty or shameful about your relative privilege in the world. Or by the stories I told, I ha- my intention has not been that to make you think, well, Mark, uh, his friends, they gave away half. I don't want to give away half. If you're having that relationship with what, um, with, with what I've shared, I, I apologize for that. My intention, in contrast to that, is to suggest that whenever Jesus invites us into something, it's because our lives are going to be better as we learn his ways rather than our own. The ways that we've learned to live that are hurried, that are consumptive, that are stressed, that are time-debted, are less than the good life that our creator invites for us. And And Jesus has a way for us that brings us into that true rest and true abundance. Will you bow your heads and pray with me? And I'm going to invite you to put your hands out in that posture of trust as we pray. Lord, we're challenged this morning to consider the invitation to your abundance, that you're our true provider, that we can learn to live lives of rest and freedom unhurried, and to use, use that life that you've given us to serve the greater good of your kingdom. Teach us to be free. Give us our daily bread. Instruct us on how to live the truly good life of abundance in your kingdom. Thank you. Well, thanks for tuning in. If you'd like to find out more about Northside, visit northsidechurch.org.au.